All right, our scripture reading this morning is a doozy. I double-checked with Matt to make sure that he really did want this as the scripture reading this morning. You'll see why and hear why in just a moment. It comes from Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I don't know what I did to Matt to deserve this, but here we go. Now on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Then those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and of the Lord their God for a fourth part of the day. And for another fourth, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, the key is to just uh, go as quickly and uh, forcefully as possible, (laughs) stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, again, confidence, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Austin. Two weeks ago, I was tasked with leading the scripture reading from Genesis 28. And Austin mentioned that when I am leading the scripture reading, he loves to select texts that include a lot of ancient uh, names of ancient places and people to check up on my pronunciation. So a day after that, when Austin texted me and asked if I had any requests for the service order for August 6th today, I knew what I had to do and <laughs> chose the one that we have just read. No. Today's reading from the Old Testament is a section from Nehemiah 9, which we're actually going to spend a couple of weeks looking at this text and and the texts that follow what we have just read, talking about the idea of spiritual renewal, looking at Israel's history of spiritual renewal, and then trying to glean some features of renewal that might be important for us. You know, renewal and renovation are undeniably ongoing parts of the spiritual life in Jesus Christ. We are to be people who are constantly undergoing renovation, always being renewed. In Romans 12, Paul famously writes, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Transformation, renewal, restoration are central to the Christian faith. They are ongoing processes. It is much less like extreme home makeover where you disappear for a couple of days and come back to what was once a dilapidated house that has been transformed into a beautiful palace overnight. It's it's much more like buying a dilapidated shack and slowly but surely restoring its beauty. We allow Christ to transform our hearts, renew our minds, and renovate our lives. And I think there are some 
potentially some common features of spiritual renewal voiced in this text that the people of Israel are walking through that, that I want to slow down for a couple of weeks and look at. But before we do that, we need to establish a bit of context for what is occurring. So much of today will be spent doing that. So here's the situation. In 597 BC, a long time ago, Babylonian forces led by King Nebuchadnezzar besiege the city of Jerusalem, pillage the city, take many people as exiles back into Babylon. This was beginning the, the beginning of an exile that lasted quite a long time. Roughly 10 years later, the years 587 and 586 BC, another siege from Babylon not only destroys the city of Jerusalem, but this time marks the downfall of the kingdom of Judah. The temple is destroyed by fire. Many more Israelites are taken out of Judah into exile in Babylon. And to be fair, that's not entirely unexpected, especially when you read some of the covenant stipulations found in a place like Deuteronomy 28. The people of Israel were repeatedly unfaithful Um, And as a result, they understand this captivity, this exile in Babylon, as judgment for that unfaithfulness. So the glory of Israel that was experienced under the likes of King David and, and Solomon had ended. But despite this judgment, despite the apparent hopelessness of exiled life in a foreign land, God promises again and again through prophets, prophets like Jeremiah, that exile wouldn't be the final word. The return to their land wasn't necessarily going to be quick. Remember, even Jeremiah tells the exiles living in Babylon, you might want to go ahead and settle down, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, wait for harvest, have children and grandchildren. Why? You're going to be in exile for quite some time. But still, we find this repeated refrain through the prophets over and over again. A remnant will one day return. Exile won't be the final word. So you fast forward several decades. The year 539 BC, the Persian Empire led by Cyrus the Great now invades and captures Babylon and issues a a decree allowing Jews that had been in exile for 50 years to finally once again return to their homeland, return to Jerusalem. That return occurs in several waves. The first one, you may remember, led by Zerubbabel, and they begin rebuilding the temple. Another wave led by Ezra, who during Babylonian captivity was a Torah scholar and, and a teacher. So Quite naturally, when he returns to Jerusalem, he reignites an interest and passion in learning the Torah. And then finally, you have Nehemiah, who leads the people in rebuilding the city walls. We read about all of this, this renewal and rebuilding process in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Old Testament, which were originally a single volume that were later split into two. But... We read about that process of of rebuilding and and renewal and restoration, and it sounds really exciting, like finally the glory of God is going to return to Israel, and then 
the story sort of ends anticlimactically. It's actually quite a disappointment because that sense of glory doesn't really return. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project actually suggests that that disappointment is an important feature of Ezra and Nehemiah. This isn't just an important historical account of these events, but it is a reminder that even though Israel is back in their land, even though there's a renewed interest in the law, a renewed interest in other spiritual practices. They are renewing their commitment to the covenant. They've confessed their sins, which we just read about in chapter 9. The walls around the city are being rebuilt. Everything points to continued success, but it all ends with disappointment. And that actually is important for us, I think, because it is pointing us ahead to the Messiah. All of the political, social, and even religious reforms were inadequate at fixing the root problem, which was the human heart. So even another disappointment is pointing the reader ahead to the Messiah and the realities he brings. What the prophet Ezekiel promises, a new heart and a new spirit, that God's spirit will actually live within his people and transform their hearts. So our minds are taken ahead to that, but we get ahead of ourselves because today we're just in Nehemiah 9. So this is after many Jews have returned from exile back to Jerusalem. A love and interest in the Torah has been rediscovered. The walls around the city have been rebuilt, but a question remains for the people. What is the nature of our relationship with God now? After repeated failures, after what we understand is the judgment of exile, now that we are back in our land, what is the nature of our relationship with God now? And in the midst of all of that, we see a spiritual renewal begin to dawn, and that really comes to to a head in chapter 8. We see Ezra and Nehemiah gather the people of Israel for a seven-day festival which, during which they read the Torah for a long time. If you think our scripture readings are lengthy, you haven't seen anything yet. They read the Torah for a long time. They celebrate. They feast. This is how their renewal begins. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the people this is a holy day, so don't weep. Instead, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Rejoice. In verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then they celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the major festivals for the people of Israel, during which they remember God's protection provision and presence during their wilderness wanderings, and then following that seven-day feast or celebration, they move into a solemn assembly, which is where the text we've just read picks up. I want to read through it again, part of it again. Verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. 
For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. We'll skip over those names since Austin handled that valiantly for us. They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God, and the Levite said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. We are going to dig into some of the details in these few verses over the next couple of weeks. But the first thing, as I read the story, that really jumps out at me is that in both chapters 8 and 9, we see this serious intention with which the people enter this process of renewal. They are intentionally setting aside a lot of time for a disciplined entry into these various practices. A lot of time and effort spent reading the Torah. A lot of time confessing sin and worshiping their God. And the question that comes to my mind is, well, is it possible that this is the place in which deep spiritual renewal, both individually and communally, begins? It doesn't just happen. It begins with intention. It is birthed in a serious intent and a desire for intimacy with God. It's the first thing I notice. The second thing I notice, what begins in chapter 8 with feasting and rejoicing, now in chapter 9 turns into a solemn assembly. They're assembled and embrace these practices from which they were just days ago instructed to refrain. In chapter 8, it was, don't weep, don't grieve, feast and rejoice. And now, a few days later, they assemble with fasting and sackcloth and earth on their heads. I wonder if there is a reminder here for us that when it comes to spiritual renewal, joy and sorrow will often be present. Those two postures can even coexist, and maybe at times they need to. Maybe at times we even need to enter something we don't naturally feel in the moment. We see that in chapter 8. As the law is being read to the people, the people are quite understandably moved to tears. They're feeling the need to repent as they face their own shortcomings head on. And Ezra and Nehemiah advise them, let's hold off on that momentarily. Though it's what you feel most naturally drawn to in this moment, and maybe it's what's most appropriate given the recent history, Let's hold off. Today is a day of feasting and rejoicing. Spiritual renewal, I want to submit, involves both sorrow over sin and joy and delight in the forgiveness of God. It involves both, and I think even needs both. Ezra and Nehemiah have intentionally built both of these postures into this renewal process, sometimes we may need to be encouraged to truly enter a joyful moment or to exult in a joyous reality that exists even if we find ourselves in a particularly dark season. Even if it's not what we feel most naturally in this moment, perhaps as a matter of discipline, we need to occasionally enter that. 
F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said, I, I don't know if he, I've seen it on the internet, so you can determine if he actually said this, but he is quoted as saying, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Now, I don't know really anything about when it, what, when, when it comes to a first-rate intelligence, but think of this idea in the context of what is taking place here in Nehemiah, but joy, sorrow. You feel like weeping because of your sin, Press pause on that and enter into the joy of the Lord. Be reminded that what you feel most naturally in this moment is not the only reality in your life with God. Conversely, you feel like you're in this perpetual state of mountaintop spirituality. Maybe you need to embrace a moment of sorrow over sin question that I want to, to ask of myself and of you, is it possible that one way we identify a growing spiritual maturity is in our ability to exist in this place of tension and to even pursue that tension, to pursue a tension of, of these two seemingly opposed realities like joy and sorrow. Spiritual renewal, I think, includes it all. So we live in that tension. And living in that tension shouldn't be a completely foreign idea. We should actually be fairly comfortable with this because the entirety of the Christian life exists in a very particular tension. We talked about this at length during our series in the Sermon on the Mount as we explored the nature of God's kingdom. One of the complex realities when it comes to God's kingdom is the already not yet tension in which we live. In Jesus, the kingdom has come. We, we believe and confess that it is here, and we enter it and embody it as we are invited to do throughout the Sermon on the Mount. On the other hand, we, we acknowledge that we await the fulfillment. We await the consummation of the kingdom when Jesus returns. All of that to say there, there is no escaping tension in the Christian life. It, it is a part of it. And that makes sense because life in general is also, also takes place in a similar tension. I think we know this to be true in various areas in our lives. I, I know some, even in this room, have grieved the loss of a loved one while simultaneously rejoicing in new life that has entered your family. I know that some are, are facing a similar tension even in a single event, like the messy mix of emotions when when a child moves out of the house. Life is complex. The spiritual life is no different. That, that sort of complexity is voiced in Ecclesiastes 3. You're probably familiar with this text, if not from Ecclesiastes, from the birds. For everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. In a time, that, that's not a part of the text. Kevin, do you want to? Get on the guitar and I'll just sing it. <laughs> a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. 
a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Those are difficult tensions. And just because those tensions exist doesn't mean they're easy to grapple with. I think about the prospect, the prospect of exploring tensions like this with our children. Uh, as their language started to develop very early on, we sort of made it a standard. We're not going to use words like hate. It's just not going to be a part of our vocabularies. Until I offhandedly said something like, I hate pineapple or I hate traffic, or something even more serious. I, I hate seeing violence. And, and our daughter's like, whoa, wait a second. We don't say hate. And so we have to enter into exploring that tension, it, which unsurprisingly has turned into our daughter sort of cataloging, keeping track of everything that we can use the word hate to describe. And she is quick to remind me, life is complex. The spiritual life is complex, but not just a reality that we sort of have to live with and, and make it through, but I think at times that complexity even has to intentionally be entered into if we want to pursue spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal involves both joy and sorrow. And that's basically as far as we're going to make it today. Over the next few weeks, as we think about Israel's renewal that is dawning in these chapters here, um, and as we try to gain some insight about how we might pursue renewal in the life of Christ day after day, I think as a starting place, we are reminded, reminded that spiritual renewal depends upon a willingness to enter this tension, the tension of joy and sorrow. If we never enter and feel sorrow for our sin, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, for joy to um, be anything more than just a surface-level feeling dependent on our situations. If we never, conversely, enter the joy of the Lord, our sorrow, even our genuine, legitimate, and needed sorrow over sin, is going to lead to despair. I think we are offered a different way. Spiritual renewal does not just consist of mountaintop experiences. It doesn't. Those are the best. They feel the best. But spiritual renewal doesn't just consist of those mountaintop experiences. It also includes sorrow. Sorrow over sin, weeping, grieving the state of our world. But it doesn't end there. Spiritual renewal doesn't occur, I don't think, if, if we're in this constant state of woe is me. Because there is joy to be found and embraced and entered. And if we look, if we look, I think it is available at every turn even when it's not what we feel most naturally. 
even when it's difficult to find. I think renewal depends on finding it. Over the past several weeks, the New Testament texts from the lectionary have focused on Romans 8, where Paul beautifully articulates a, a similar tension. We are united with Christ, and when we are united with Christ, we occupy this new territory. We, we live now in the realm of the Spirit, not the realm of the flesh. And Indeed, the Spirit of God lives in us and gives life to our mortal flesh. It's an incredible, glorious reality that point, Paul points to. But then just a few verses later, verse 23, Paul reminds us that still we groan and long and wait with all of creation for final redemption. Reminded that the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. So on one hand, we have glory. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, we are groaning and waiting, weak and in need of help. The Christian life, spiritual renewal, I think of any kind, sits with this tension. So I'm reminded that what I feel most naturally in this moment, whatever that is, is not the only reality in my life with God. Even if I feel sorrow and despair over sin, there is joy available today. So today, wherever you find yourself, whether you're in a season of joy or a season that feels a lot like despair, God is there with you, and I think can use whatever that season looks like to draw you to himself. Perhaps it would even be a matter of discipline to enter into or entertain an emotion or an expression that you're not naturally feeling in this season, not as a way of ignoring the present reality, but as a reminder that God is in it all and working through it all to draw you into deeper intimacy. The weeping and the feasting has a role to play in our spiritual renewal. So don't reduce the spiritual life to one or the other. I would encourage you, intentionally build both into the spiritual life. And I think doing so enables us to maintain both a serious and healthy spirituality. We'll continue this conversation next week. But for now, I want to invite you to stand as we celebrate around the table of our Lord. A time where we are perhaps reminded of this tension, these realities, joy and sorrow. We rejoice at this table We are also reminded of the seriousness of our sin. And as we enter this, as we feast at the table of our Lord, we are reminded of the grace and the mercy that is available, that Christ is extending. We receive, we rejoice at the the gift of salvation. I want to invite you to the table. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you come to the front, somebody somebody will be here and speak over over you the words, The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation, and then I'll invite you to the table. Lord Jesus, as we begin to explore 
this story of your people in the ancient past. They're working through this question, what is the nature of our relationship after failure? We are reminded that you are a God who is interested in our renewal, in our restoration, so that we might be agents of restoration in our world. Lord, I pray that you would birth in us, birth in me, a desire for deep intimacy with you, a desire to be renewed and to continue this renovation process to be restored. That we might bring and speak your restoration to those we come into contact with. Give us strength to enter into a time of weeping and sorrow Give us strength to enter into times of joy at the forgiveness and life we find in you. Now we pray, almighty and merciful God, it is only by your grace that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?